Welcome to Paradigms on WBKM.org. This is episode number 74, Sunday, April 10th, 2011. If not us, not them, if not now, then when, if not here, nor there, if not this world, then where, if not us, not them, if not now, then when, if not here, nor there, if not this world. If not us, not them, if not now, then when, if not here, nor there, if not this world. Good evening. Welcome to another edition of Paradigms. Baruch here with you. April 10th, spring, finally, in New England. Hallelujah. We've had a couple of beautiful sunny days. The snow is melting. I don't know about you, but it does me a world of good. Very, very good. I'm sure my vitamin D levels are climbing daily. That song was called If Not Now. The artist is John Gorka. And, uh, very relevant because what we're talking about tonight are some things that need to happen now. Really good things. Got some great interviews tonight. The first interview of the night is with a group of UMass students, University of Massachusetts students, who undertook a permaculture project at their university uh, last fall. They'll tell us about it, and there's a link to a video about it on the Paradigms website. And hopefully that's something that other people will do at their colleges. They're going to be growing the food for their college dining hall organically using permaculture with lots of students participating. Fun, good stuff. That's our first interview. Then we'll be talking with uh, Christopher Flack from Vermont who is part of a group of citizens that got together and are working on a labeling law for genetically modified organisms in the food supply. So we'll hear about that and, and, and why they're doing that and how they're doing that. And then we have an interview with Jody Meyer from Wisconsin to talk about what happened in their Supreme Court election this past week and, and the ongoing legal situation that that has created. And of course, lots of great music. So we'll get into all that and glad to be with you tonight. Let's start out by hearing from our friends at the University of Massachusetts. This is Paradigms on WBKM.org. My name is Meg Little, and I'm a UMass Amherst student, and I'm on the UMass Permaculture Committee. 
My name is Ryan Harve. I'm a sustainability specialist here at UMass, and I'm facilitating the uh, implementation of the UMass Permaculture Garden. Uh, I'm Nick Daly. I am a UMass student as well as a committee member on the Permaculture Committee. And I'm Rachel Dutton. I'm also a student here at UMass and a member of the Permaculture Committee. Tell me about the project and how it got started. Uh, well, the project started last year as a um, more of a hypothetical class project in John Gerber's sustainable agriculture class, um, where uh, our final project was to present a topic in sustainability. And a group um, came together and decided that we wanted to take on a project that would allow UMass to have more edible landscaping and uh, we eventually narrowed uh, the entire campus down to this one garden site that was previously a lawn and uh, we saw as having a lot of potential for a garden. What was the process like in terms of working with the college? I was also simultaneously um, doing a front lawn conversion into a permaculture garden as part of my graduate thesis project. Uh, so as this was happening and as there was a student movement happening, we kind of aligned forces and um, went and made some presentations to a few of the administrators, one of them being the uh, director of dining services. He got really interested in this because they were doing a local food um, push. They're, they're really trying to increase their local food purchasing. They, they went from 8% to 25% in the past seven years, I think. Nice. And so just growing food right on the campus made total sense to them and doing it in a sustainable way by having a low maintenance system and having students involved just really, you know, it brought it all together. So. We made this uh, presentation to them, uh, to Ken Tung in particular, he's the director of dining services. And from there, it just happened, he, he hired me and we formed the permaculture committee and the rest is history. <laughs> that is so great. And so there, you met with no resistance. Do you want to talk about the, the parking lot? <laughs> yeah, one of, one of the obstacles that we were, were working around in the initial phases was a um, an idea to turn our our garden space into a temporary parking lot. Our, our campus is going um, through a lot of construction right now and they needed temporary parking space and um, we knew that even that temporary time under all those tires would really do a lot of harm to our site and um, luckily uh, UMass knew those implications and knew the benefits of growing food rather than having it be a parking lot. That's great. Yeah, that would have really ruined it. <laughs> yeah, it would have. Did you have to do any bioremediating of the site or was it just ready for the sheet mulching? Yeah, so last fall we took um, a soil sample of the site and we knew okay. that sheet mulching was going to be the approach um, that we you know, were going to do as opposed to tilling the soil. Um, just because the biological activity when you do tilling of the soil really gets disturbed. And we felt that just coming from an ecological perspective, it makes a lot more sense to do this no-till system. And even though it, it takes a lot of labor to do a sheet mulch, we, we had so many students who were interested in helping. We got 150 students to volunteer. It was no problem. Wow. It was great. So uh, we, we did do some additional 
uh, additional remediation to the soil aside from the sheet mulch which was um, some rock minerals that we got from a local farmer um, Dan Kittredge is his name and we got um, just a, a whole bunch of I'd say calcium and phosphorus and potassium and a whole bunch of trace minerals a nutrient nutrient dense spring mix just a, just everything that the soil needed um, sprinkling that with the compost and from there we just layered it right right onto the site and giving that about you know five or six months over the winter to really get settled in and then planting is gonna it's just waiting right now it's just gonna we're gonna plant in a couple of weeks and it's gonna just boom is the snow gone the snow is gone until tonight <laughs> yeah 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 wow what are the results you anticipate you're, you're gonna plant soon what is the plan for the garden and and what do you expect to uh, reap from it ten foot tomato plants <laughs> first of all <laughs> We're looking to grow a good mix of um, some perennials, some herbs, and some annuals, and we'd like to put in some berry bushes and fruit trees. But I think the garden has more purpose than just food production. It's also an educational tool, and we'd really like to increase transparency in, in where we get our food on campus. And we think that this garden right on campus is a good way to start that. Will there be a way for students who weren't part of the initial project to plug in and participate? Um, yeah, definitely. As Ryan said, earlier in the fall we had over we had 150 students helping us out um, with the sheet mulching process and everyone I think had an outstanding time. People were really excited about it and we also have students just lined up to start helping us plant. So. We're going to have a lot of volunteer work, a lot of room for participation from other students, and I think we're going to have a, a great turnout. Very cool stuff, very cool stuff. Um, we've got another bit of interview with those young folks who are doing that good work at UMass. Uh, let's get into some music. Here's a, a remake of a Joni Mitchell song. She remade it herself. I think you'll recognize it. Till it's gone, the pit paradise put up a parking lot. They took all the trees, put them in a tree museum, and they charged all the people an arm and a leg just to see. Till it's gone, the pay paradise put up a parking lot. Please, don't it always seem to go 
place Put up a parking lot Late last night I heard the screen door slam Then a big yellow taxi come and took away my old man Put up the parking lot They put up the parking lot Parking lot Wasting my life Just dreaming away No, never again Will I ever stray Find my way back To the rose in the garden I'll find my way back Sweet on
All right, that was my old school from Steely Dan. Seemed right for, you know, college student interviews. J.J. Kale before that, Rose in the Garden, and Joni Mitchell's 2007 version of her huge hit anthem, Big Yellow Taxi. Well, let's listen to the second part of my interview with the students at the University of Massachusetts about their permaculture project. What do you all feel like you've learned from this so far? I've learned um, that there's a process to everything. Whereas I, I come from an agronomic background, I don't necessarily have the skills to properly plan um, a full-scale garden to to reach all of the people that we have through media sources. Yeah, I mean, the good thing about having a committee with you know all undergrads with diverse backgrounds is that we all bring something different to the table. You know, I think some of us have more strengths in plant and soil sciences and understand what kinds of plants work best with other kinds of plants. But some of us, you know, have the marketing background to um, to help advertise the garden. Some people are maybe know more about how organizations work on campus. And so I think we all sort of learn from each other and we're all getting this like broad range of experiences from the project. I can add just um, in the organization of all of this. Um, when you are doing something by yourself and you know how to do it, it you know, you can you can get it done to a certain extent, but it's going to be a very lonely path doing it by yourself. And that's something that I experienced last year when I was doing this, you know, personal yard transformation. Spent a lot of time by myself doing it. And this year, um, you know, I'm spending a lot of time on the computer organizing a lot of people to come together uh, to do this. And I'm, I would say I'm not doing as much of the, the hands-on work, which is really a lot of the work that I enjoy most, but it can be a lot more powerful to, to just take kind of a, a different role. And I think all of us have done this, really telling our friends and being on the computer and being on Facebook, using social media to really garner this movement that's really happening among the campus, the students, as well as the administration. Like The administration is seeing all this happen and seeing um, what a shapeshift uh, is occurring right now. That's a, a teacher of mine would say that word shapeshift when anything is you know, going a different route or you're, you're changing things up from the usual business as usual approach. And so I, I, th I really think that's what we're doing. We're kind of doing this uh, shape shift of UMass right now by changing this campus lawn and changing people's attitudes simultaneously. It changes the way community is formed. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that I learned um, that I was really amazed at is just how many students are ready for this and how many students are excited about this. I just have been blown away every single time by just people all over campus telling me now that they've watched our documentary that, you know, they're so impressed. So many people just want to help out. They want to do anything they can to get their hands on it. And I just have really been blown away by the amount of people interested and the amount of people passionate about what we're working on. What would you suggest people do who uh, maybe are students at other colleges or universities or other institutions that would like to do something like this? How would, how would you suggest people get started? should check out our documentary first. <laughs> Coming from a, an undergraduate, a business background, and then getting more into environmental focus as a graduate student now in you know, my, my life's work, I definitely see the need for, for that business background or just having the skills to create a really 
uh, solid proposal to the administration, really clarifying the goals and you know, really having to sell uh, a university or the administration on the project. I, th I think that's what we've done really quite well here is patting their back and saying that everything's going to be okay and that, you know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look great and we're going to have people to take care of it and really, really just having to sell them on that and make them feel comfortable that this is going to be a really good project that benefits them. And so, you know, even though it's going to be good for the students, like how, you know, the university is going to look good by, by us doing this and, you know, it's going to offer a lot of positive publicity and you get positive publicity if you do really good things and you're speaking the truth and you're, you know, doing things that really resonate with people. And so I would say really just clarifying those goals and, you know, easing the concerns of the university, the administration, and just showing them all the benefits that, that come from this. And I think they could really use UMass as an example to say, hey, you know, look at all the articles that are, you know, being written just about this one project. We could have this here. And we could also be growing food on the campus and create, you know, food security and, you know, a place for students to gather and just have fun and get hands-on experience. So just that campus education is a really big part as well. Are you going to be documenting the progress in an ongoing way? Here's what I'm wondering. Could people, is there a way for people to access your proposal or your information as they put together their own for their own place? Yeah, I'd be happy to share it. It's actually something, there's another student, is it in Missouri or, I, I forget, I think yeah. it's actually Montana, uh, who's compiling a handbook on different permaculture projects and we were sharing with him the proposal that I, I had made to the administration just, you know, about what, what we were trying to do and what the, like, the themes were that we were going for and some of the things that would help, you know, sell an, an administration on this. So I would definitely be happy to share that. and. Any listeners out there, you can uh, send an email to umasspermaculture at gmail.com and I'll be happy to send it to you. We're, do we're doing this whole implementation of the quarter of an acre this year, but it's really, it's not something that's going to be permanent. Like, you know, with permaculture, it sounds like it's a, a permanent installation. It's just going to be there. It's going to be the same. It's, it's obviously not. It's going to evolve over time. And so we have different stages to this garden that, you know, we're going to be implementing at different times when it makes sense, when we have the people to do it, when the budget allows, you know, there'll be different things that we can do at different times. So just kind of honoring the fact that we we have um, what we have now, we have the plants that are available and we're, we're just gonna, you know, watch it evolve and be open to a lot of ideas from other people who come in and say, I might want to add this art project or I might want to add, you know, this component to it. It's very designed in a way where it allows for creativity and for change to happen. One of our, one of our goals in this project is to reveal how replicable it is, how easy to do. You can do it in your backyard uh, or on your campus. Um, you can do it at your work. You can do it anytime. <laughs> um, because it's, it's, it's really quite easy, given enough friendly people to help you out. Well, thank you all so much, and I think it's a great project, and wish you tons of luck with it, and continued exposure, and I hope lots of people contact you and say, how can I do this at my school? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're hoping. We're already getting a lot of that, too. There, There's a lot of people who are coming to us, and it's great, and that's what we want to, maybe we'll be having a conference or, or some sort of workshop where we invite a lot of people to gather and meet each other and just you know, create that collaborative space where people can interact and give each other support and ideas and, 
create a network of you know all these universities and all these projects all over the nation or all over the world and just keep going with it that's the whole goal is to inspire and just keep it going thanks so much thank you yeah, thanks, thank you isn't that cool so if you're going to school somewhere or if you work at a school somewhere you could initiate something like this and get this going at your own school or or maybe a hospital that has a bunch of lawns anywhere. Really, really cool stuff. And uh, very, very good. All right, well, let's uh, listen to a little music, and then we'll be back to talk with Chris Flack. Here's something from the Buffalo Springfield on Paradigms.
That was Stevie Nicks with I Need to Know, a live version from her Soundstage Sessions CD. And before that, the Buffalo Springfield. Let's meet Chris Flack and hear about the GMO labeling law that's in process in the Vermont State Legislature. My name is Christopher Flack. Um, I'm with the Labels for Liberty campaign uh, that's getting behind uh, a bill that's currently in the House right now uh, in committee to label all genetically engineered foods sold in the state of Vermont. Two questions. One is how did the uh, organization get started? And secondly, why pursue the issue of labeling of genetically modified organisms? What's the thinking behind right. that? First, one of the most important things, really, um, just right up front, is that we're actually um, not an organization. So we're, we're just a group of, of folks from our, around the state, um, all different professions. Some of us are involved more directly uh, with food than others. Uh, we've got teachers, secretaries, engineers, farmers, uh, everybody. Um, and there really is no organization that we're part of. We're just doing it because we all feel that it really is something important. It did start from the Millions Against Monsanto campaign. It was a, it was a national campaign from the Organic Consumers Association, and they organized a day of action on March 26th, a couple weeks ago, of rally for the right to know um, all over the country. And so I was part of a group that organized the Vermont chapter of that in Montpelier. And, and from that, we decided that um, when we realized that there was a, a bill in committee uh, already focusing on this and uh, that we had very little time uh, left in the, the legislative session to, to do something about it, we kind of shifted our focus to our own campaign locally at a state level. And as far as why focus on them, we don't really, it, it's almost not an issue whether you support GMOs uh, or not. To most of the folks working on the Vermont campaign, it's, it's really just something that has to do with our fundamental fundamentals of democracy. You know, you can't really claim that you have a, a democratic system if uh, the folks don't have the information they need to make informed choices. And, and that's kind of the situation in the food system right now, um, where we have certain things going into our food and companies aren't required to disclose those. So we're, we're trying to approach it from a, a broader angle um, and really just, you know, say that you know, if there really isn't anything wrong with these ingredients, there's there's no reason to hide them. So it sounds uh, like it's just a grassroots effort of folks who came together. There's no money behind it. There's no even political agenda behind it, except this right to know. Right. And, and that's really, um, you know, what we think is, is one of our strengths in, in what we're doing. Um, this is, like I said, we're we had planned on just, you know, doing another rally in the summer to keep the uh, keep the momentum going. But like I said, when we found out that this bill, H-367, was, was in committee, um, we really wanted to focus as much as we could over the next couple of weeks on that. And we're doing that, like you said, through a, you know, a really grassroots effort. Um, just wrote up a petition ourselves. They've gotten it out to um, all the volunteers. We had about 100 folks sign a petition that we had at the rally, which was sort of just accidental. We weren't even really thinking petition drive um, at that time. We were just there to rally and, and you know, raise awareness and all of that. But without even trying, we really got a, we got 100 signatures and, and almost everyone we stopped, you know, or saw what we were doing, we barely had to mention anything about it. As soon as you said genetically modified, they go, oh my God, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to do something about that. So surprisingly, it's, it's really not a hard sell to, to any of the folks we've, we've spoken with in Vermont. Um, it's just a matter of doing that organizing, which like I said, right now we're doing through a petition, um, hopefully get as many signatures as we can in support of that particular bill over the next couple of weeks. Well, it doesn't get any more democratic than that, what you just described. <laughs> well, wow. You hope so. And, and, and again, it's, it's something that we, we really would hate to see politicized just because it really, it, it's really just a fundamental 
issue. That's another reason why we kind of separated ourselves from the um, millions against Monsanto thing. We didn't feel like, you know, Monsanto is, is a big part of the genetically modified issue for sure, but it's almost giving them too much credit um, and, and putting them in the conversation a little too often if, if you just kind of wag your fist at, at this one company and go right after them. Because, you know, at the end of the day, Monsanto really isn't the ones, isn't the company that's that's manufacturing the food. Uh, isn't that, isn't, they're not the ones that are packaging the food. So there are a lot of other companies involved. That's not just Monsanto. So um, we wanted to kind of make that clear too and, and, and separate ourselves from any danger of saying, oh, it's just you know, it's just this group of grassroots people who is attacking the big evil corporation. It's just another one of those things. Because it's not just another one of those things. It's something that affects everyone, regardless of, of what your political beliefs are or even what your feelings on, on GMOs are. So you bypassed the spin machine. Hopefully. We'll, we'll see. That's, a, that's brilliant because it's really, I mean, especially here in Vermont, we have such a history and rich tradition of growing food, of growing really wonderful food. Mm-hmm. And and, and it, it's something I think that when you're in touch with your food and where your food comes from, it makes you, I think it makes people uh, feel more connected to their home, more connected with their community. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. And when, I mean, when, I think it's, it's a great point to make too. And that's, um, there's sort of three, three points on, on our petition, the new one that we have going around. And that's, that's sort of the big, the big closer for us really is that we do have a huge agricultural tradition here. And if you look around the state at what's going on right now, there really is a huge revival around this, this idea of an agricultural economy. You know, the folks up in Hardwick basically rebuilding their town over, over food and all, you know, all the farm to school programs that are popping up around the state and local food distribution. And you see the intervale still going strong down in Burlington. There's a lot of energy for, for this. And, and a lot of it does focus on knowing where your food comes from and knowing what's in your food. I think that's a big motivator for a lot of people to get involved with the local food movement. So it's not just something that is classic Vermont, you know, agriculture period. It's something that's a really big part of where Vermont is going um, and where Vermont has made it clear, where the people of Vermont have made it clear they want to go. So yep. um, that's another another point we'd really like to make to the legislators is that, uh, you know, the folks want this in every other way. And it, and it just kind of makes, this bill just kind of makes sense, really. Yep. Saying agriculture is part of Vermont's, it is Vermont's sustainability plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And again, if you, there's, you know, plenty of people have brought this up, but every time there's some other natural disaster or some other, you know, something happens uh, elsewhere on the world and you look at the effect it has on the food supply, it's, it's just another reminder of how important it is to, you know, be able to get your food as close to home as possible. And, and whether that's growing your own food or just knowing your farmer, you know, it really, it really is directly related to sustainability. Um, but again, with the, you know, trying not to polarize people with what we're doing, we do realize that there's quite a bit of GM corn that's grown in Vermont. You know, when we talk about farmers, I think we have to be careful to not just think of all the wonderful organic farmers that are around the state and doing really great things with their CSAs and going to the farmer's markets and all of those great things. Um, Because there are quite a few folks who do, you know, use genetically modified products in the state and grow that stuff. And again, we just want to be clear that there's, you know, we're not trying to tell any farmer or grower what they should or shouldn't grow. It's just about, what ends up on the shelves and what consumers know or don't know that they're buying. Yep. And then consumers will tell them what to grow by exactly, what they buy. Exactly. And, right. And that's, so that's kind of the next step too. I mean, we obviously, <laughs> or pretty obviously, I guess, you know, I, I have my own opinions about, uh, you know, what I would buy or what I wouldn't buy, but yeah, I mean, we're not trying to make that decision for anyone. We're just saying that, Hey, there's a, there's a lot more information available than, than what's currently on the packaging. 
All right, that's Chris Flack. Very interesting to hear about this law, and we'll hear more about it in a few minutes, more of the specifics. But there is a link on the Paradigms website to the law itself. It's very short and written in very simple language. You might want to check it out and see what you think about it and, and let your state legislators know if you live in Vermont or this may be a model for something you want to introduce in your own state. Let's get into some more music. Here's some fun music about science. Here's Laurie Anderson on Paradigms on WBKM.org.
here. Otherwise, what are the characters going to fall off of? And what about stairs?
Recognize that one from the Rocky Horror Picture Show Science Fiction Double Feature. Just seems to go with the GMO theme and big science from Laurie Anderson before that. Let's hear uh, the second part of my conversation with Chris Flack. This bill is to uh, implement labeling. So, does that mean yep. that there is food on the shelves in Vermont that has genetically modified ingredients that people currently do not know? Are genetically modified? Uh, yeah, I mean that's a that's a pretty safe statement to make. We've looked around at, you know, we've been scrambling as much as we can because we really, we thought we were. I mean, we and we still are braced for a longer uh, battle. But this bill being present has sort of gotten us scrambling as far as our research goes and all those kinds of things. But um, depending on what what research you read and, and what study uh, you look at, it's anywhere between sixty to eighty percent of non-organic food in a, in a, any given grocery store is has some genetically modified ingredient in it. And genetically modified means what exactly? Basically, it's, you know, every food, uh, like, like, like people, like anything else, um, has a DNA structure and something that's genetically modified, uh, you know, genetics are within that. And since something that's genetically modified has had its genes either moved around in a, in, to be put into a different sequence, has had some kind of foreign gene introduced you know, into the strain of genes. Um, there's a couple other more complicated uh, scientific things that, that, that can be done. But um, basically, the, the, the 
function of this and the argument for it is that it allows crops to resist certain diseases or um, most commonly it's it's uh, allows crops to resist certain pesticides or chemical fertilizers so that you can you know spray your whole field to knock down all the weeds and it, it won't do anything to the corn mm-hmm. or whatever you're growing the soybeans or the canola um, there's a lot of things that are are modified but the whole the whole idea is that basically there's, there's a, a quite a good deal a pretty significant deal of scientific tampering going on and i guess some folks would hear that and go okay well you know What's really wrong with that? And some folks might say, uh, yeah, well, you know, this has led to quite a quite a bit more food be able to be produced. And then, you know, I'll, I'll point to some of these things, but I, I guess there are still quite a few unknowns. Um, for us, that's the issue, I think. It's, it's not so much, um, you know, these are or are not good for your, good or bad for your health. There's just too many unknowns. And, and, and I think that's, that's for the issue for us. If there's something that's so questionable and, and someone can't definitively say, yes, these are... Uh, these are bad for your health, or these are not bad for your health. That you know, someone should should let consumers know that. But <laughs> those questionable or um, not fully researched products are, yep. are in their food. And then people can make their own decisions. I, I was reading recently about. Uh, I read an article. There is some research now linking certain kinds of digestive problems with genetically modified corn. And I'm sure there will be lots of research pointing in both directions because, as we know, research is often funded by the corporations that have a vested interest in the research, and so you have to really mm-hmm. sift through it. But right. it's, it's clearly we don't have all the information. Right, and, and you know, I think that's it's not only do we not have all the information, I think a lot of the folks who are dealing with these products on a day-to-day level don't have all the information yet. Um, so it does, it, it does seem a little risky just to make, make these things uh, so widely available to the public. Um, but again, again, that's it's getting a little more into GMOs, plus or minus, good yep. or bad. And yep. um, so this bill has been know. introduced, and what happens next? Um, well, again, we're all we're all pretty <laughs> green to the uh, the legislative process. So it's in it's been referred to the Committee on Agriculture, and it's been read once. Our understanding has got to be has that has to be read three times, um, and then you know it can move forward from there, and hopefully come up to a vote. We're working against a pretty tight deadline more or less the first week, the end of the first week of May, depending on what they end up deciding to do. But basically about a month to really mobilize everyone in the state who's interested in this and get all their support and collect all those signatures and deliver that with a couple weeks to spare to the to the legislators. So that's that's what we're looking at. Uh, and we, we did, like I said, when we had our initial rally in Montpelier, we, we had a ton of support and, and folks were there from all over the state. And so um, actually later tonight we're sending out the petition materials to all those folks who wanted to, who, you know, checked the little box and said they wanted to organize in their communities for this issue. So You sent me a copy of the bill, and it's very simple and easy to understand. Anyone can read it and really decide whether or not it makes sense to them. Yeah, I mean, it's three, it's three pages, and it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I was really surprised at how straightforward it is. And, you know, another note about the, the bill in particular, it's a pretty tough, uh, labeling requirement that they're putting on in comparison with the other labeling requirements that exist around the world. So we're pretty much the only developed country in the world that does not have uh, some kind of requirement for labeling genetically engineered foods. Uh, could have something to do with the fact that we combine with Canada and, and Argentina to, to, to produce about 80% of those <laughs> for the world. But China, Russia, Brazil, uh, the European Union, pretty much any major country has some kind of rule on this. And most of those rules 
are something to the effect of naming a percentage of ingredients in, in a given food. So in, in Japan, for example, it's, it's 5%. So if any given food has five or more percent genetically modified ingredients, it has to be labeled. In the European Union, it's, it's more like 1%. I think they're actually fighting for a 0.9% to really drop it even further. This legislation doesn't set a percentage at all. It just says flat if it contains one or more ingredients, doesn't matter the percentage, how small it is, uh, one or more genetically engineered ingredients, then it has to be labeled. So um, this is a really tough stance on the issue. So we'll see how that goes. Maybe in negotiations that gets pulled back. But up front, this is a very, very bold approach to the issue. If folks do want to get involved there, um, get involved with us. And again, it's anywhere in your community. If you're anywhere, listening anywhere in the state, we can let you. We can point you to someone who's organizing in your community. And if there's not someone organizing in your community, we can get you the materials you need to get started collecting signatures. And, and folks can just email labels for liberty, all one word, all lowercase, labels for liberty at gmail.com. Fantastic. Uh, folks can get in touch that way. So one thing people can do if they go read the bill and they agree with with it, they can contact you, or they can also just contact their state representatives and senators and let them know. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always a great way uh, just to contact your, your representative directly. Although I would urge folks to, if, if they really do care about it, to at least make sure that they, they find a way to sign our petition or collect, you know, even if it's just your family members or, you know, your most immediate friends. You don't have to collect 100 signatures or 500 signatures. If you can get five or 10 signatures, um, it really, really does all add up. The petition is really going to um, be the big thing that we're hoping to deliver. And, you know, obviously the higher those numbers can be, you know, the bigger an impact it'll it'll make, hopefully. But again, it really is just a fundamental issue. Um, if you go to the store and you're, you're buying a product, you know, you should know what's in it. You should know what you're, you're buying. Maybe one thing to note about this is that uh, if you are buying from your, your local farmer at your farmer's market and he's an organic grower and um, you have a relationship with him or, you, you know, you at least see him face-to-face and can ask him questions, this doesn't necessarily affect you as much. We, we are talking specifically about packaged foods, um, which mm-hmm. tend to be, you know, processed foods. So, you know, certainly something that affects the food system as a whole and, and affects all of us and certainly has numerous effects on the environment and many, many other things. But this is by no means a scare tactic or any kind of fear campaign, you know, if you buy fresh organic vegetables, you're not going to get genetically engineered food. So maybe just a little bit of a plug for, for the farmer's markets coming up this season. Yeah. Uh, but really appreciate you having me on. And um, like I said, we'd love to see folks get involved in any way they can. Um, this is a really, really important issue for everybody um, and a very short amount of time to organize around it. So please feel free to get in touch. Uh, labels for liberty at gmail.com. All right. Chris, thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Chris. Very interesting to learn that the United States is one of the few large industrialized countries that doesn't require labeling for genetically modified ingredients in our food supply. And whatever your feelings are about it, I I think the idea of this law with that people just have a right to know what's in their food really makes a lot of sense. So I'm hoping that will pass. All right. Let's listen to a little music and then we'll be back with Jody from Wisconsin Here are the runaways on Paradigms.
got your fans and I got mine But I need your love, that's the bottom line I sing lead and so do you Get together, what will we do? that there are no bad babies born upon the face of this earth. All babies are born good. It's what we give them in love, what we teach them in education, what we lend to them in trust, that they'll return to us in that dream of the future. Whatever bitterness and hatred you harbor in your heart, let the cycle stop with you, and don't pass it on to your children because it is the greatest disease that you could ever expose them to because it's a hard life wherever you go. I am a backseat driver from America We drive to the left on Falls Road And the man at the wheel's name is Seamus We pass a child on the corner he knows And Seamus says, now what chance is that kid got? And I say, from the back I don't know he says there's barbed wire at all of these exits There ain't no place in Belfast where that child should go Cause it's a hard life, it's a hard life, it's a very hard life It's a hard life wherever you go And if we poison our children with hatred Then a hard life is all that they'll know Ain't no place in Belfast where a child should go. Cafeteria line in Chicago. A fat man in front of me. 
He's calling black people trash to his children He's the only trash here I see And I'm thinking this man wears a white hood In the night when his children should sleep But they'll slip to their windows and they'll see They'll think that white hood's all they need It's a hard life, it's a hard life, it's a very hard life It's a hard life wherever you go And if we poison our children with hatred Then a hard life is all the tale no And ain't no place in Chicago where a child can go alone When dreams could be held through TV We had Disney and Cronkite and Martin Luther And I believed, I believed, I believed And I will always believe But I am a backseat driver from America And I am not at the wheel of control and I've been guilty, I've been war, and I have been a root of all evil. Lord, and I just will not drive on the left side of the road. Cause it's a hard life, it's a hard life, it's a very hard life. It's a hard life wherever you go. And if we poison our children with hatred, then a hard life is all the tale no. There'll be no place on this earth where a child can go Cause we'll have made it a hard life wherever they go That's Nancy Griffith. That's one of my favorite Nancy Griffith songs. It's a hard life. If we poison our children with hatred, then the hard life is all they will know. And it's so true. We heard Heartbeat from the Runaways before that. I've been covering the events in the Midwest and Wisconsin for well, a couple of months now, and I hope you all have been paying attention to what's happening there because Wisconsin is really pivotal right now in terms of a very radical agenda that's being enacted in this country. Wisconsin is the shot across the bow, if you will. There was an election for the Supreme Court justice position this past week, and it looked like Joanne Kloppenberg was going to win, and then uh, a very partisan town clerk showed up two days after the election with an additional, oops, 7,500 votes. You can Google numerous articles to read the details, the facts about what's going on there, but it is extremely suspicious, and it is in keeping with what we have seen in the last, well, since the 2000 election, presidential election, where there are Republicans that are attempting and have been succeeding in committing election fraud and stealing elections. And so it seems like that may be what's happening in Wisconsin. I can't say I know that, but it, it certainly looks that way. Anyhow, let's hear from Jody in Wisconsin. Hi, my name is Jody Meyer. I am a 
37-year-old married father of two that lives in north-central Wisconsin, and I'm a member of a political action committee called Middle Wisconsin. So what's happening now in Wisconsin following Tuesday's Supreme Court election, and what's your take on it? Well, currently, um, the canvassing is still going on. I believe at the end of the day on Friday, there were 53 counties that were certified with 19 more to go, and Prosser was holding a decided lead, I believe, um, almost 7,000 votes. So, you know, both you know both parties, both Kloppenberg and Prosser, have retained teams of, of legal counsel. There have been formal complaints filed with the with the GAB here in Wisconsin. Several state legislators have petitioned the federal government to come in and investigate uh, the matters in Waukesha County. So, uh, I don't know. It's 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 a mess right now, and I doubt that you know anything clean will come out of this um, in the next week or so. I'm sure that there will be a legal fight ahead of us. Now, I I've been you know keeping up with the story and reading what I can find and and talking with folks and. Any opinion I would have would be conjecture since I'm not there. But the turn of events of the way the 7,500 votes suddenly showed up, and it all seems really fishy. Yeah, yeah. To say the uh, least. It's a, it seems pretty fishy here uh, as well. And, you know, I've, um, I've talked with people that, you know, have voted for Prosser and, and uh, you know, are obviously very happy that he's in the lead now, but they readily admit that, it, you know, if it uh, looks like a duck and sounds like a duck, it's probably a duck. <laughs> Do you think that the uh, the mechanism is in place and the will to really uncover whatever's going on? Yeah, I think the you know I, I definitely think that the will is in place. Um, like, like I said, there's been a lot of petitions. There were protests down in in Waukesha County today, so I, so I think the the action is there. Um, I think the will is there. I don't know if, if you know, if if the machinations are going to be there to to uncover this. I, um, it, it certainly is entirely possible that this is all on the up and up, and it was a human error. But you know, there are just a lot of things that would be a quote unquote coincidence. You know, beginning with the fact that this uh, county clerk is a staunch Republican who worked in the assembly with. Prosser and uh, worked with Walker in the past. She has met with Prosser several times over the last several months. She's from the same part of the state that Walker is from. The extra uh, votes come out two days after the fact. She makes no announcement to the election boards or the election officials. Nobody's aware of this until she goes in front of the camera. Um, you know, at the time. She was reporting on, you know, a, a magical "quote unquote" 7,500 votes, which is exactly the number that uh, a candidate would need in this particular election to uh, avoid a free recall. So that would mean that if he indeed was ahead by at least 7,500 votes, Kloppenberg would have to pay for any recall herself. You know, there's a lot of inconsistencies with the type of software she was claiming to use and the human error that supposedly took place, uh, it, it, it just doesn't add up. No, it sure doesn't. Well, I hope very much that it is uncovered and that, if anything is true, the people of Wisconsin have shown that they are 
strong and relentless and committed over the last couple of months. So I can't imagine that you all are going to let this stand. No, we're not going to let it stand. We're going to fight. I, I think the you know the unsettling thing is that uh, is the amount of money that's behind this and the amount of organization and as a citizenry we've slept for too long and they have a far far greater lead than we ever anticipated. Not in term not a lead in terms of this election necessarily, but in what it takes to keep control and keep the power and. Uh, I think that's the one thing we learned here over the last couple months is that this is not going to be easy and not not a small group of people are going to be able to do this. Everybody needs to participate. And, you know, it was it was thought before, weeks before the election, that Prosser was going to win by a landslide. Uh, so the fact that it is this close is heartening. But, you know, it's also disheartening in the fact that not even 40% of the people in the state came out and voted, you know, and two months worth of, of protests and, and petitions and recall efforts and, you know, call-ins and editorials and, and organizing and just, just generally getting active by a lot of people. And there's still 60% apathy, you know, is the way that I see it. And, the, you know, the cognitive dissonance that's still taking place here and people not understanding what's at stake and what they're about to lose in the fact that they're not at a fight for their very, in a fight for their very way of life is, is concerning to me. And that's really what middle Wisconsin is all about is educating the people and getting them active. Uh, we need everybody if we're going to turn this thing around um, because they have the money and they have a tremendous head start and we need to do it by the, by the sheer volume of people that we can, there's more of us than there are of them. So if we can get us, get ourselves all active and, and together we can win this thing absolutely no more complacency we don't have that luxury there's no no absolutely not there is no no such luxuries any longer well i really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and i will continue to be following this and as things unfold it may become clear how people who don't live in wisconsin can support uh if there's a, a legal battle um and and hopefully you can stay in touch with me about that I certainly will. I, we really appreciate uh, the interest in helping spread the word and get the word out. And we know that you know there's not only a middle Wisconsin, but there's a a middle Illinois and a and a middle Minnesota and a middle Maine and a middle middle Connecticut. And there's 50 of them out there, and everybody's got to get involved because this is happening everywhere. It's not just Wisconsin. Thank you so much, Jody. Yes, thank you. It's pretty intense to think about election fraud and people stealing elections. It's really, uh, how low can you go, you know? But as I said to Jody, the people of Wisconsin, if nothing else, have shown that they are strong and inspired and they certainly have my support. And to that end, I want to let folks in Vermont, especially in the Burlington area, know that on Wednesday, April 13th, Rance Priebus, who is the new chairperson of the Republican National Committee and who is widely recognized as being the architect on the assault on workers' rights in the Midwest that's occurring right now, including in Wisconsin, um, he will be speaking at the Vermont Republican Party fundraiser Wednesday, April 13th. The unions of Vermont, Teamsters, Vermont AFT, UPV, NEA, VSCA, Vermont Workers' Center, all invite people to come and join with them 
to stand in protest against this incredibly socially destructive and really, I would add, criminal agenda. Uh, the protests will be meeting at the Church Street Marketplace at 515 and then uh, walking down Pearl Street to the Hilton Hotel on Battery Street where the Republicans will be holding their meeting. Personally, I hope someone arrests this person for co-conspiracy to commit election fraud in Wisconsin because uh, the Republicans are basically uh, attempting a coup. They're attempting to take over the country with what they're doing in Congress, holding the country hostage to ideological issues uh, and, and threatening to shut down the government, refusing to pass a budget unless their ideological demands are acceded to. I mean, really, the Republican Party needs to be reined in at this point. So uh, this protest will be happening Wednesday, April 13th, 5.15 p.m. at the Church Street Marketplace. And hope you can be there. Well, it's been another wonderful evening to spend with you and share great music with you and the really interesting people I get to talk with. My name's Baruch. I hope you'll visit the Paradigms website, paradigms.bz, where all of our shows are archived. And have a great week. I'm going to go out with a little medley I put together myself, The International. Now, if you don't know this song, check it out. The International is an international anthem for the people. So, enjoy. Have a great week. See you next time on Paradigms on WBKM.org. Stand up, all victims of oppression, for the tyrants fear your might. Don't cling so hard to your possessions, for you have nothing if you have no du passé, faisons table rase, fous l'esclave, debout, debout. Le monde va changer de base, nous ne sommes rien, soyons doux. Bordica, ma slori, elle distinga, men des skatti, forbetet. Bordica,
You've been listening to Paradigms on WBKM.org. Thank you.